welcome to Lineage. I'm your host, Shani Jamila. This show features intimate, in-depth interviews about the idea of home with some of New York's most imaginative thinkers. I talk with my neighbors and fellow artists about how the city impacts their work and how their work impacts the world. Today, my guest is the celebrated visual artist, Stephanie Jemison. Her work is in the public collections of the Whitney Museum, where she was featured in the 2019 Biennial, the Brooklyn Museum, the Studio Museum in Harlem, and the Museum of Modern Art, amongst others. Stephanie holds an MFA from the Art Institute of Chicago and a bachelor's degree from Columbia University. A 2020 Guggenheim Fellow, she serves as an assistant professor in the Mason Gross School of the Arts at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. Our conversation ranges from her childhood in Cincinnati to how her academic interests inform her cultural production, including a collaboration with Jamal Cyrus. Alpha's Bet is not over yet. A collection of reproductions of African-American periodicals that were published from 1902 to 1939. When this broadcast begins, Stephanie had just shared that she spent the bulk of her childhood training as a gymnast from the ages of 2 to 13. And now... On to the show. So that's a huge part of your upbringing, and I imagine it taught you to be in your body in a very specific way. Can you tell me about what that was like? It's funny because it's 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 hard to know what it would have been like to not be trained in that way. Um, I have glimpses of it when I interact with you know with other friends, my husband who grew up doing um, social sports. Um, you know, playing basketball and baseball and things like that. And I see that he, his mind muscle connection is much, is very different, is much um, less private. I think um, one of the, one of the funny things for gymnastics about me and probably one of the ways that it impacted me most significantly is how it involves uh, uh, establishing goals that are kind of um like hierarchical and in 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 a really specific sequence and you you know you establish one goal and you accomplish that thing and then you move on to the next and then you move on to the next so as a kid it means that you have a really um like a very practical sort of tactile lived experience a physical experience and also a kind of psychological experience of learning learning how to learning how to do something and then doing that thing um setting the goal of being, you know, you can, you can imagine in a way that feels really concrete, maybe more concrete than school, um, where it's like, what would it mean to get through this year of American history? Who knows? But, you know, looking at someone else doing a particular acrobatic skill and knowing that you'll this month be able to do this and next month this and next month this, and by next year you'll be able to do that skill too, um, seems like a really particular seems like a really particular experience that affected me. So let's actually kind of pull back the lens a little bit. Tell me more broadly about your your childhood. What are your favorite memories um, about growing up? I grew up in Cincinnati, uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, um, in a uh, suburban neighborhood. It's kind of a uh, it's kind of an old school suburban neighborhood. I don't know my 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 husband um, his parents live in the suburbs now, and what their suburbs are like and what mine were like feel so different. So now which I, which city are his parents in? They're in Kennesaw, Georgia. 
Um, and it's the kind of place where you can't get anywhere without a car. Um, there's not a whole lot of street life um, or sidewalks or people on bikes. Um, whereas where we grew up was, um, was um, very intimate, very connected. Our neighborhood um, had a community center, a recreation center to which we always belonged that included thing you know a swimming pool our brownies troop met there um the uh neighborhood was not one in which every house was built by the same developer or even at the same time and so um there was an, a real kind of heterogeneity of um i mean within the context of the suburbs heterogeneity <laughs> of everything's relative yeah of of architecture i mean since you, you know um i know that you know cincinnati a little bit so you know that it's um it's an interesting place because the cost of living is um is is relatively modest and so you often find neighborhoods that are much more socioeconomically diverse than similar neighborhoods would be in other parts of the country um or even um a nice neighborhood might have um, families that are actually very well off as well as families um, with um, more more modest jobs um, and kind of everything in between. And it was a great pleasure to grow up in a space that felt really free and really flexible um, and really secure, but also um, but also uh, with a certain uh, you know like a small amount of friction that comes from that kind of diversity. You know, what's interesting is that um, our families are friends and, and uh, both of our parents are based in Cincinnati. So there was a point um, many years ago uh, when I went to the first time that I went to spend some significant time with my parents visiting. And um, it was directly in the wake of when Timothy Thomas was killed, the 19-year-old um, was killed by the police in, in Over the Rhine. And there was a great um, uprising that happened in the city in response to that, that um, in retrospect was was uh, somewhat of a precursor for the era that we're living through now. This was in what year? That would have been probably 2001. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Cincinnati sits in my mind as a place of... Um, uh, I was going to say unsafety. I don't know if that's the word, but when you said, when you described it as a place to be safe and free, and then I thought about my initial introduction to the city, which was in the context of the uprising around the lack of safety and the lack of freedom um, for, for black people there, um, it just kind of rang as an interesting, like, huh, is it something that's changed over the years? Or, or do you think that it's uh, just unique to specific experiences or... Well, I mean, you know, Cincinnati. Cincinnati is a, is um, fairly segregated uh, racially. The city of Cincinnati um, has a, um, you know, quite a lot of black folk, and um, I think um, in those in a way that then is not so dissimilar to New York, for example, where there's a there are certain ways in which we can understand New York as extremely unsafe, um, both for black people as people vis-a-vis -vis the police, um, but also for, you know, for, um, 
for black people in certain neighborhoods. Um, we still think, we still know, actually, that New York is overwhelmingly, tremendously, and unusually safe. And, um, and Cincinnati is, um, is not, actually not as safe as New York, but not dissimilar in the sense that there's a certain amount of, um, of um, there's a certain sense of protection that comes from, um, from, the, from not being isolated. And, um, but, but, Tim, but uh, Tim, Timothy Taylor, is that his name? Thomas. Thomas, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, he was killed after I left Cincinnati. Um, I uh, moved to New York for college in 1999. And, um, and I was only sort of um, obliquely aware of, uh, of what happened. But I do think of it as a, in retrospect, I do think of it as a kind of precursor um, to the present moment, in part because my, my parents ended up developing a kind of role as activists in relation not to the initial um, murder, but actually what happened at one part of the aftermath, which is that the police officer um, perpetrator was then reassigned um, or then left his position in the city of Cincinnati and accepted a position in the community where we lived, um, which my parents um, actively opposed. And, um, and that was the first time I'd known my parents, um, my father in particular, to publicly involve themselves um, in advocacy around race. It's not that they hadn't done it when I was younger, but I think that um, I think that for um, for different reasons, I um, I didn't always know, and and um, from a distance, I was all of a sudden able to see. What did it mean to you to see that? You know, My parents' experience in Cincinnati is very complicated because both of them, uh, for a variety of reasons, um, built lives that were um, extremely kind of profoundly racially integrated. And I think um, I, and at the same time, we were also involved with, they also, um, many of their closest friends were black and they involved, um, they made sure that many of our closest friends and kind of communities, um, were, were also black, me and my, my younger brother. Um, but, uh, I think that, um, it was important for them to raise us to believe that, it was important for them to raise us in such a way that we did not feel, um, automatically kind of skeptical, um, uh, or fearful or limited, um, as, as black kids. And I do think that things were different then. Um, like I think that for my parents, um, the kind of first generation of, of, um, adults who benefited from affirmative action, um, who grew up in um, at least partially in integrated schools, um, they they when when I was really young, it's possible that they imagined that things were moving in a different direction um, than than we now know that they have done. Um, so maybe that maybe their perspective also reflected a kind of generational optimism um, that has um, not exactly deflated, but um, you know been um, tempered and sort of clarified. Um, as 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 the years have gone by, hmm. um, how far back do you go in Cincinnati? Where are your people from b- prior to that? 
So, um, I, none of my extended family is in Cincinnati. My mother's family, uh, is, uh, from the Carolinas and my father's family, uh, is from Alabama. Um, my mother was born in Steubenville, Ohio and raised in Pittsburgh. And my father was born in Chicago and raised there. And my parents, um, both lived in a few different places before they met, um, which was in DC. Um, not too long after they met, they moved uh, to the Bay Area where they lived for some years and where I was born. And they moved uh, to Cincinnati not too long after I was born. So you uh, were in Cincinnati through high school, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you went on to Columbia here in New York. Why Columbia and why New York? Uh I think most of my ideas about my future came from books, and I, it was always really easy for me to imagine myself uh, somewhere else. And Cincinnati, when I was growing up, felt really limited. It felt conservative. Um, it felt uh, it felt it, it it didn't feel like it had space for whatever I thought my vision was. Not that I really knew exactly what that was. I was also super academic as a kid, and um, like even by the time I was a um, in my later high school years, I had really particular academic interests, and um, I don't know that I was able to see the intellectual culture that I somehow thought that existed somewhere. I don't know if I was able to see that. What were your academic interests in high school? Who were you reading? Um, I had a few interests. Um, I um, I was super interested in... Uh, I mean, it's kind of embarrassing to think about these now, but no. um, I was really interested in um, in philosophical, like aesthetics. I was in, I was actually interested in philosophy in general. And um, when I was earlier in high school, I was really into like the philosophy of math. I remember that the autobiography of Bertrand Russell was one of my favorite books. Um, also, his Why I'm Not a Christian, another favorite. Um, but I read like a, a a bunch of books that were. Um, and had a lot of interest relating to um, to the philosophy of math, um, and then I became interested in aesthetics. Um, there was a book called *The Aesthetics of Rock*. I remember by this um, Canadian philosopher that um, that just that was all about the kind of ontology of pop music and whether the essence of a pop song is a recording or a performance and that, um, you know, traced everything to the moment when Bob Dylan plugged in his guitar. Uh, I remember (laughs) being really influenced by that book. Um, I took, um, I actually took, um, I went to Catholic school and took philosophy classes as part of my coursework. And so, um, I was really influenced by and, and really interested in, in that work. And then I would I was also really interested in gender studies and um I like I encountered Foucault's history of sexuality as a as a student. Um and um and then I had done a summer program at um the University of Michigan that was about ethics and um so we read it was sort of focused on um John Stuart Mill before and after and so um I was also um I was also pretty interested in, not necessarily in in Mill himself, but in the history of ethics, political philosophy. Like, I I thought that those were my interests. (laughs) This makes me want to have met you back in high school. (laughs) I'm picturing, like, this disciplined kid 
um, you know, from all those years of gymnastics training and like a kind of a rigorous approach to school. How would you describe yourself? Like, who were you as a high school student? I I think I was confused like everybody else. Like, I wanted to be cool, but it was really not cool. I My friends were um, um, also good students and pretty um, pretty much pretty rebellious I would say um I was I was friends with kids who uh you know listened to weird music um I went to a school where there are very few students of color um and uh my closest friends uh, one of them is still a very good friend now she also lives in New York um but my closest friends and I I think we all sort of struggled to find our place um in uh you know this all-girls school, mostly white environment. I don't know that I would describe myself as rigorous, but I was definitely very focused. I took a lot of college classes in high school, and um, I was pretty focused on my next steps because I was so disappointed by Cincinnati and <laughs> my and my and my kind of present. And so I was. I, I spent a lot of time sort of planning, um, planning how to get into college. You know, I, I remember that I would buy these career books. Like, I thought I wanted to work in Hollywood because that seemed like what cool people did. And so I had this book that had like every job. And so I like poured over it and I was like, well, I'm not going to be an actor. I'm not going to do any of this technical stuff. I guess I have to be a producer. Or I would, I would have these, um, for a little while, I thought I wanted to be a, a philosopher of law. And so I was like, okay gonna get my BA here my JD here my LLM here (laughs) um yeah um so I don't know I was just a little bit dorky I guess or a lot dorky is really what I was well it's interesting is a lot of those things have woven themselves into your practice as an artist right like you're producing films and cultural experiences and um you have a like a very, um, I would say the philosophy, like you're, you're, there's a lot of thought that goes into the work that you create. So there's a, um, what I would read is a heavy philosophical underpinning to the work that you make. Would you agree with that? I think definitely. Um, I don't know about the Hollywood connection so much. <laughs> um, part of it is just, you know, like it's, you know, when you're a, when you're a kid, all you can really imagine is what you know. And that was like mm-hmm. the form, that was like the path, the creative path that I could, um, that was easiest for me to see. It was like either being a, like a novelist um, or like working in, working in film. I was really into movies um, or music. I was really into music. Um, but um, I didn't know any artists. I didn't know anything about art as a as um a discourse contemporary art um but it's true i mean i i definitely think that my uh that my both the kind of systems and methods that i had already begun to um develop as a younger person to help me plan and kind of structure my life um and then also um the the very kind of particular theoretical interests in language and speculation and um and this interest in aesthetics and kind of genealogy I mean it's funny to think how that was present so long ago when you were an undergrad you studied um comparative literature um when did the idea of making a life as an artist present itself to you and um how did your studies 
influence that, if at all? I don't know that my studies influence my decision to pursue um, to pursue a life as an artist, although my studies, um, my undergraduate studies are certainly thematically deeply connected to the work that I do now. Um, but it really wasn't until I was always interested in art, um, sort of in general, or I be, developed an interest as I became more familiar with, um, with, with art history and with contemporary art. Um, after moving to New York, I became interested in, in, in art in general. And I, um, became involved, uh, with, uh, initially through the activist work I was doing, in connection with Amnesty International, um, and in connection with my work in, uh, Everyone Allied Against Homophobia, uh, which was the Gay Straight Alliance at Columbia, um, and, and some of the other organizations with which I was involved there, I, um, I began to work a lot with artists and to think about the relationship between, between, um, creative work and politics. I would say that those, those ideas felt really unresolved to me. And when I was finishing college, um, my friend and I received a Mellon Minority Undergraduate Fellowship to research uh, the kind of intersection of, of art making and activism. And we interviewed uh, maybe 30 artists in New York working in different fields and um, f- with, a, with a kind of particular focus and trying to understand. And it felt very investigatory. Like we were really, really just trying to understand um, whether what um what kind of political change art might be able to uh affect or accomplish and trying to understand how it is that artists especially artists who situate their work within communities or um who see their work in as in connection with um with um the sort of social cultural political economic systems um that we inhabit how 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 those artists um uh, imagine their goals and um their capabilities it was very open-ended and confused (laughs) um but also super productive and actually a few of the artists that I interviewed then I'm still actually really good friends with I, I became good friends with or um um stayed stayed deeply like closely connected with and so yeah, that was an important that was an important collaboration. Um, the friend that I undertook that with is um, now an anthropologist. Her name is Amiel Melnik. Who were some of the artists that you interviewed? We interviewed um, we interviewed Olangeshi Mutu uh, when she was a resident at the Studio Museum. Uh, Jason Kapadia, Andrea Geyer, um, Jennifer Miller, Michael Rakowitz. Um, so many, so many more. Do you still have that archive? Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like you've been an amazing resource to return to now. I know. We, and for, we imagined that we were going to publish it, but then um, weren't quite able to make that happen with the resources we had at the time. Um, but I think now, especially now that so much time has passed, what a treasure mm-hmm. those interviews are. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit more. You were saying that there's a lot of thematic resonance between your undergraduate studies and the work you're doing now, which focuses on, on um, among other things, literacy and communication. But can you sit with that for a little bit and, and tell us more about um, the themes that you're exploring in your work? 
I don't know. It's I don't know if there's an easy way to summarize the themes. Um, but what I can say is that when I was a student, um, I, I I wrote my undergraduate thesis on um, the concept of soul um, in relation to negritude in the context of uh, Curtis Mayfield's song and a suite of poems by the um, the poet David Henderson, the New York poet David Henderson. And I, as a student, I was thinking, on the one hand, I was um, super influenced as a competitive literature student by the um, the kind of mo- that moment in literary criticism, kind of post-structuralist um, moment uh, in which speaking back to and um, finding ways to um, both um, um, sort of decompose or respond to or um, or break open uh, the narratives we inherited felt really urgent and felt like a politically viable project. Um, and at the same time, um, African-American studies in general was, I think, really dominated by literary studies at that, t- at that moment, um, much more. It felt that way to me as a student um, more than it feels that way to me now, and um, and so I was. I, I think that um, many of the theories, many of the ideas around what it meant to um, what it meant to be subversive, um, were um, were kind of theorized through literature and through language. Um, and I'm thinking, for example, even when I was a student, even when I started school in the late 90s, of the um, really enduring influence of Henry Louis Gates or Houston Baker, um, people like that, um, post-colonial scholars like Komi Baba, um, as well as, um, you, uh, you know, Gayatri Spivak was, was teaching at Columbia at the time, Edward Said was teaching at Columbia at the time, post-structuralist scholars like Andreas Hoysen, um, uh, and so on. Um, even someone like Robert O'Mealy, whose work at the time was sort of about music, but in the context of, but like as a literary scholar. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and then and then uh, as as a result of that, um, I uh, w- uh, continue, uh, or I shouldn't say as a result of that, but um, my my kind of ongoing. Uh, interest in um, the politics of narration um, and what um, what it means to propose a kind of counter modernity or to speak back um, to um, uh, modernity um, those kinds of questions um, I, I think that they um, were they're shaped by I shouldn't say that those questions are what sort of dominates my practice, but they influence the way that my practice has developed and they were shaped by the intellectual environment in which I came of age. Um, I uh, work with multiple media. I work with video performance. Um, I work a lot with language as a, as a subject um, and also as a, as a medium. Um, I, uh, as a result, I work um, with um, both with writing um, and with drawing um, and um, with uh, approaches to mark making that sort of um, exist between those two, um, um, which I which is a practice that I situate really in, in really particular ways, sort of historically and culturally. And I also work a lot with sound and music and um, 
I would say, you know, I describe my interests as, um, as, as really formal in the sense that I'm, I'm really engaged with it, um, with kind of histories of forms, um, rather than, um, rather than with, um, representation broadly speaking, or, um, rather than with, um, uh, um, kind of reference as a sort of starting point. And the, those formal interests, I think, are really inflected, uh, or that formal approach is really inflected by my work as a student. I'm thinking about, like, a particular project you did at the New Museum where you were, um, you put periodicals from the 1930s on display in a way that people could interact with them. Can you tell us more about that project? Sure. Um, so that that um, work is a collaboration with the artist Jamal Cyrus, and um, we call it Alpha's Bet is Not Over Yet, um, which is the title is um, is borrowed from uh, the MCE philosopher theorist Ramosim, and um, he used that phrase to describe a project, but it, he also developed a sort of theory of um, that he called Gothic Futurism uh, that connected contemporary graffiti to medieval calligraphy um, and that suggested that the alphabet was merely a gentleman's agreement and a kind of temporary agreement. I um, love that idea. <laughs> um, and so he argued that the alphabet was, you know, as, as an agreement, it was um, just a social contract that can be suspended at any time. Um, and that we're, and, and, and it also, um, one of the effects is that it, um, takes it, it turns the alphabet from a, um, a a system of or it exposes the ways in which the alphabet ca- um, can simultaneously be understood as a sort of system of domination or power or a management tool or administrative tool and also the fact that we allow it to possess that power and we can take and we can um, withdraw we can withdraw that at any time it's such an interesting thought I mean it just makes you pull back from uh something that we all kind of take for granted, that the these lines in this formation possess this meaning. And all of us have to agree to that in order for it to have any kind of, uh, in order for it to work. Yeah. Right? And I think that, that the kind of arbitrary um, nature of the relationship between these particular marks and their interpretation is something that is... Um, is revealed so often in narratives by former slaves as they describe learning to write um, and learning to read that um, on the one hand, there is sometimes this kind of like moral, political transfiguration story that happens um, um, given that many of these narratives are sort of transcribed and um, and uh, meant in part to inspire white abolitionists to um, advocate on behalf of on behalf of slaves um, in order to eradicate slavery. Um, at the same time, there's also this sense that the um, that the that the kind of particular configuration that is um, you know English language writing um, is um, is um, is sort of accidental or arbitrary or temporary um, that it could be different. Um, in the Confessions of Nat Turner, you know, there's this, you know, at the, at the, toward the beginning, he describes learning to read, and he says, I never had to learn, I always knew. Um, so he suggests that he was sort of born with the capability, with mm. this knowledge. Um, so it's not something that comes after, it's not something that a master has to give him, it's something he always has. 
Um, but then later, when he's describing when he's describing the moment of revelation, when he um, makes when he's um, uh, is um, sort of inspired to um, lead a an armed revolution, he describes seeing um, uh, figures of men in different attitudes written in hieroglyphics, hieroglyphs, um, and leaves on the trees. And um, this word hieroglyphs... I'm sorry, the hieroglyphs were on the leaves in the trees? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, and in the poppies in the field, written in blood. Um, And um, this idea of the hieroglyph seems to almost um, have a kind of, um, like a horizontal, like a kind of equal weight to um, English language writing, even though it's really clear in the context of the book that this was a kind of uh, a revelation that was private, um, or at least at that moment it was private. But it opens up the possibility that someone else could have passed it and read it and and, and read the same thing. Yeah. Um, and so, um, and who knows where that word came from in the context of that book or what it might have meant to him or to Thomas Gray who transcribed slash you know, generated, produced, constructed this um, text. But um, it's an, that um, anecdote is an indicator, um, one among so many places um, where there's like a little wedge that shows um, how open um, the uh, understanding of what writing might mean has been for black Americans. You've also um, used as... uh... I guess, inspiration, um, a notebook that a janitor from the 40s or 50s put together? I actually see that as um, super connected. Um, I am I'm really interested in, um, in forms of spirit writing and forms of writing that have yet to be sort of interpreted or decoded. And uh, one of the pieces of writing that I think about a lot and refer to and have been kind of sifting through and trying to understand is... Um, found in the notebooks of James Hampton, um, who was um, spent his life as a custodian in Washington, D.C., um, but was sort of in parallel building this massive system of sculptures um, within which he functioned as a kind of central prophetic figure. And um, the sculptures are in the collection of the Smithsonian's, um, but um, they were accompanied by these notebooks, um, and the notebooks uh, contain these glyphs that um, are kind of writing-like, um, but um, most of them, and they're very con- consistent, I should also add, but um, but um, most of them are not actual um, kind of um, letters in English or any other language. And cryptographers have, you know, used algorithms to try to figure out exactly what he might have been writing. It's so consistent that it seems as though it must have been a writing system, um, but they have not yet been... Um, have not yet been decoded. It's interesting. I remember I also studied um, languages and literature in undergrad, and um, I remember a quote. Um, I can't remember who it was from, uh, but the word stuck in my mind, and it was that um, a language is simply a dialect with an army. Um, just really thinking about this idea of how um, hierarchy and power is embedded in what we decide to acknowledge as our shared means of communication, right? Like um, mm-hmm. the reason why those notebooks that you've you've come across um, were only his notebooks is because other people didn't agree at that moment that that 
those markings were going to have social significance beyond his own mind. Yeah, and I think Ramosy was super interested in this idea um, of uh, writing, uh, writing's relationship and language, language too, but writing in particular's relationship to power and um, and um, and actually the exercise of that power. So part of his Gothic futurism system involved uh, decomposing individual letters into their constituent marks and then assigning those marks secondary meaning so that like a vertical thrust was a missile or like a rocket launcher Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so meaning like the vertical line and like an e a capital e or something like that and a horizontal thrust um had another significance so every letter had multiple meanings including a kind of militaristic meaning in addition um in addition to the standard standard interpretation your quotation also reminded me a little bit of um, the work of Edouard Glissant. Um, I was I was familiar with his work as a student and probably think about it even more now, um, but he certainly has um, written really beautifully on the one hand about the ways in which um, the standardization of language is um, a kind of hegemonic expression of um, and violent expression of power, um, and then also about the ways in which um, opacity um, or refusal to make oneself understood or allow oneself to be understood or to make one's work legible um, can itself be a strategy of resistance. Mm-hmm. How do you think about um, the ways that you want your work to be received? Because... Uh, on one hand, there's this really deep um, impetus, it seems, to root your work in um, historical references of, of black radical expression. Um, and on the other hand, I've heard you talk about uh, publicly about um, how being a black artist in the art world means you're inherently interfacing with a white audience. Um, sit with that. Tell me, how do you think about what lessons it is that you're trying to impart and who it is that you're you're trying to give them to? Complicated question. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I definitely, I think, I, you know, I guess um, one thing that I would say is that there, on the one hand, you know, as, as a, it's impossible to think about what it means to be a contemporary artist participating in the sort of interlocking system of um, museums and other institutions, artist residencies and the kind of nonprofit structure of the art world, um, commercial galleries and the economies of, um, of investment uh, and um, sale that um, kind of um, through within which our work circulates um, and even the art education system um, within which I participate as a professor uh, it's impar- it's impossible to conceive contemporary art as 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 I engage it um, outside of that system that is the kind of context within which the work circulates um, at the same time I actually don't think um, I feel like it's my obligation to imagine and leave um, and, and, and anticipate audiences uh, outside of that system. So the work um, can simultaneously participate in that system, circulate in that system, um, acquire value in that, within that system. I acknowledge 
I, I acknowledge that. Um, and I also, at the same time, don't think of that as exclusively who the work is for. Um, I do, I think there's a, a kind of speculation involved, um, in, in, in making art, um, in the relationship between the work and its audience, um, or the relationship between the work and a kind of spectator. It's, it's a, a witness that you're waiting for, um, witnesses that you're waiting for, um, who, um, whose experiences, um, can never, you can never, you can never really specify. You can, um, part of the great faith, um, that's required in, um, in being an artist is having faith that the work will reach, um, that it will reach this, the many communities for whom it might be destined. And, um, that the, um, and that it can resonate with, with, um, that, that, that destiny. Um, I think that's the faith, for example, that Nat Turner had when he turned, when he, um, delivered this narrative to, to Thomas Gray, that there would, um, be a future in which that text could do something maybe more than it was able to do for him at that moment, right before he was, he was killed. Um, or that, uh, James Hampton, as he, as he sort of, um, transcribed these visionary thoughts his prophetic thoughts in a notebook that might not yet have found its um intended audience um that maybe they're speaking even the same language um and sometimes um one of the things that I think of myself as doing is being a kind of steward holding and protecting space um that um um holding and protecting work that I, um, to which I may not be fully, um, privy. Um, and then part of it is, 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 um, is making things and, um, with the knowledge that that making involves a leap of faith. I often, um, in, I often quote in talks, um, Huey P. Newton, who likes to, to quote, but I can't just quote Nietzsche. I have to quote Newton quoting Nietzsche. Um, he liked to quote Nietzsche. Um, he wrote of what it means to be a um, an arrow of longing for another shore. And this notion of mm. an arrow um, that's sort of like moving in a direction. Um, but um, but that 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 destination is um, that it's kind of the kind of um, clarity and specificity of it is, is difficult. The desire, though, the orientation and the force of it is really clear. Um, and that space um, um, that is um, that we you know that we describe that we articulate as like a kind of it's a kind of desire, um, and it's a desire both to be closer to, but also um, for me a, an acknowledgement of the distance that's always between us and um, how powerful it is to hold and create space for and um, and um, respect. Um, the kind of irreducibility of our own experiences and bodies. Um, that is um, where I kind of locate my work, and um, the, the kind, those are the kinds of questions that I think about when I think about um, my audiences. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us on iTunes. It helps others discover this show. You can also follow us on the socials at Lineage Podcast and visit lineagepodcast.com for information about live events, to see portraits I've made of our guests, and to become a patron of this broadcast. For more from me, 
head on over to shawneejamila.com. The inaugural season of Lineage is brought to you by the generosity of our campaign supporters, with special thanks to our founder circle. Amika Carter, Ayana Dixon, Vera Grant, Lawanda Hodges, Ayana Minor, Wendell and Helen O'Neill, Rimani Rogers, Jimmy and Lee Sutton, Chantal Vera, Stacey Burton-White, and our associate producers, the BK Fam. Graphic design by Tony Moore Images. Original music composed by Cody Got Beats. Thank <music> you.